sermon in this long letter of Paul wrote to the Corinthians. The first sermon that I preached on this book was back in 2018, a long time ago. We had some other series we did in between that, but September 9th, 2018, so almost two and a half years, this is part 54 of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. So we'll finish it today. Looking back, which I did this week, thinking back on this entire letter, thinking about the sermons that I had preached, it is very clear that this letter from Paul, it's truly a love letter. He calls the Corinthians his beloved over and over. He takes a lot of time to thoughtfully address them. This is the longest letter that Paul wrote. So he's thoughtful. He takes his time. And as we'll see today, he expresses his love for them throughout the letter. And he'll end it expressing his love. Now most of you know that if you really love somebody, affirmation is not the only thing that comes out of your mouth. Affirmation does come out of your mouth. There are many soft words toward those that you love, but there's also hard words. If you, if you really love somebody, it's one of the tests, if you really love somebody, then you, you want what is best for them. And sometimes that means you're going to say something that they don't like, but it is important for them and it is good for them to hear. Well, this love letter from Paul, it is no different. Paul has affirmed the Corinthians, but he's also admonished them. He has corrected them. In fact, unlike any of his other letters, he has admonished the Corinthians way more than he has affirmed them. But none of that means that Paul doesn't love them. The opposite. He loves them very much. He'll write a second letter, and in chapter 4, verse 14 to the Corinthians, he said, I do not write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So it all goes together. To admonish you as because you are my beloved children. So, no surprise, when we get to the end of Paul's letter here today, he ends this amazing book with some hard words and some soft words, but all of it, it's in love. Let's make sure that we now pray together and ask for God's help as we look to hear the preaching of his word. Would you bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, as we listen to this sermon, myself included, would you fill our minds with truth? Fill our hearts with affection. 
and move our wills to love you and to love others more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't already, would you open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the last chapter of this long book. I'm so glad to be done with it. It has been good, but I'm always glad to finish something and move on to something else. So if you're using one of our Bibles here, you'll find today's text on page 905. These verses, they are the final greetings. And technically, a greeting is just a message from someone who is absent. That's what a greeting is. And that's exactly what we have here. We have a closing message from Paul, but also from other Christians who are absent from the Corinthians. So we're going to look at these verses in two parts. Look with me in verses 19 through 20. We have a closing greeting from others. And then in verses 21 through 24, we have a closing greeting from Paul himself. So closing greetings from these various churches and Christians, and then a closing greeting from Paul himself. So let's begin. Let's read verses 19 and 20, where Paul sends a closing greeting from others from Various churches and Christians. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, some of your Bibles might say Priscilla, together with the church in their house send you heartily greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So there's four groups. You can see them. There's four groups that are represented here. First, the churches of Asia sent greetings. This isn't Asia as we think of it, spanning all the way from Turkey to Japan. This is the Roman province of Asia, which was basically the the western third of modern-day Turkey. So Paul says the churches there, the Christians there from that region, they send you greetings. That means they love you. They send you greetings. That means they love you. They're thinking about you. They are praying for you. It signified when you sent greetings, it signified we're part of the same Big family. We're all Christians. We're brothers and sisters. And here they are in a different part of the world sending greetings. We love you. We're thinking about you. We hope you're doing well. We're part of the same family. Second, Aquila and Prissa. They sent greetings. Now we can read different parts of the New Testament. They show up in several books. They were a special couple. They were a Jewish couple, originally from Rome. But then under the emperor Claudius, they were expelled. He sent all of the Jews out of Rome. So they left Rome and they ended up in Corinth. That's where they met Paul originally. 
And they met Paul because they would be outside the temple, just like Paul was, practicing their trade, which was the same as Paul, tent making. So they're fellow tent makers with Paul. Paul gets to know them. They become very close friends. It's likely that he even lived with them during his entire 18-month stay in Corinth. And now at this point, Apparently, they've moved on from Corinth, and they are in Ephesus with Paul, and they also are sending their love to the Corinthians. Third, there was a church. There was a body of Christians that met in Aquila and Prissa's home, and they also sent their greetings. And then finally, fourth, Paul uses this catch-all, all the brothers, all the brothers sent greetings. In other words, a, a whole bunch of other believers that I don't have time to list out here, they also consider you family. And they also, they're thinking about you. They hope you're doing well. They love you. They're praying for you. They send their greetings. So, do you see the bond that existed between these Christians? They're from different churches. They're from different parts of the world. And yet, they loved one another. This is not like the love that I have for our brothers and sisters at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sacramento, or the love that I have for our brothers and sisters down the street at Grace Bible Church. If I see someone from that church, or if I meet someone from those churches, and I haven't even known them before, and I meet them and find out where they're from, I sense a connection between us. And I have instant affection for them. If their members are here, you know, they're welcomed to take communion with us. They are family, as are Christians from any other churches that are preaching the same gospel that we preach here. Why? Because they are our family. Over the years and for different reasons, I've connected with pastors from all over this country, and we've worked together, usually through uh, counseling of members that have either come here from there or have gone from here to there. And through that, I've developed an affection for them. And when I think of them, I pray for them. Even though I've never met them, they're from another church in another part of this country. You might have an app on your phone or you might read an article that stirs up love for Christians in unreached parts of the world or in persecuted parts of the world. That is all a good thing. That is a good thing. And it's something that we should look to cultivate. And it's demonstrated right here. It's demonstrated in these verses. Paul is... Passing along this affection from these other churches. They are bonded together as part of one family. Now, there's one more phrase 
at the end of verse 20. That some of you were hoping I would get to and others were hoping I would skip. Paul writes, greet one another with a holy kiss. So we've got to make sure we get our kissiology straight this morning. I'm going to tell you what that means. I can count on two hands the people in my life that I kiss. And it only takes two hands because I've got a pretty big family. The people that I kiss are my wife and my kids. And I hope you do the same. Not my wife and my kids. (laughs) That sounded wrong. (laughs) Your spouse and your kids or your parents or your siblings, a kiss, you know this can be a very sweet expression of love, of commitment, of devotion. Now, in the early church, this is when Paul is writing, that custom that you know in your home that extended beyond the family at home and into the family at church. And so men, typically on the cheek in church, would kiss other men. And women would kiss other women. And that still exists, of course, you know, in other parts of the world today. And it's meant to then and now. It demonstrated this love for one another. It demonstrated that that we are committed to each other. We're devoted to one another. We share this bond as believers. Well, today... That bond is no different. The the, the bond was not greater in the first century. The bond that we have today is exactly the same. But, this is an important but, our cultural expressions, they are different. So you should ask permission before just reinstituting this. Don't bother asking me permission. My answer is going to be no. A hug... I'm game. An an arm around somebody, you do this. You hug people that you love and care about, even if they're not a part of your family at home, but they're a part of your church family. You might hug them. You might smile at them. You might put your arm around them. You might put a hand on their shoulder. These are good things. They are ways that we express our affection for one another, and encourage one another. That's what Paul is talking about. So that's part one. Some closing greetings from others. And now in these last four verses, we have the closing greeting of Paul himself. So let's read verses 21 through 24. I, Paul... Write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. The way that Paul would write these letters is that he would dictate to a secretary. 
And then that secretary would actually write the letter. But at the end of a few of his letters, Paul takes the pen from the secretary and he writes the last few words himself. That's what Paul does here. And that's what he means in verse 21 when he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And what does he say? What are his final words? Three things. Number one, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. Second, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And then third, he says, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's look at these one at a time. Though I'm going to switch the place of two and three. But number one, the first thing he says in this closing greeting. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. That word accursed is a very strong word. The word is anathema. And it means damned to hell. Hard words. What a thing to say in a closing greeting. Let me read it in a true way that may hit your senses better. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be damned to hell. That's, that's harsh. That is a hard word. So when Paul then says, our Lord come, which is a translation of Maranatha, he means, oh Lord, come in judgment. That's how this fits together. He says, anathema, Maranatha. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, Richard Pratt writes, Paul declared that the Lord curses even people in the church if they do not love him. The realization that such deceivers infiltrate the church caused Paul to cry out, Come, O Lord. He prayed that Christ would punish those who brought trouble to the church through their pretense of faith. Paul knows that there were wolves in Corinth. He knows that there were pretending believers. They weren't there for the glory of God. They were not there for the good of people. And Paul, out of love for the Corinthians, he cries out to Jesus to come in judgment and remove them from the church. Hard words, loving words. This is true in any church, by the way. This is true in any church. I'm sure it is true in our church. There are 
people among us who, as John put it in 1 John 2, 19, are not actually of us. And how does Paul describe the accursed here? What what gives them away? They have a t-shirt, accursed. It's not obvious. You've got to look beneath the surface. What gives them away? What does he say? If anyone has no love for the Lord. No love. The Lord is who? Strictly speaking, Jesus, the Christ. If anyone, they've got no love for Jesus, let him be damned to hell. The Greek word that he uses for love, because in Greek, right, you know that there's lots of different words for love. We just use the word love, but we mean all kinds of different things when we say love. Okay, there are things that we love, but we love them in different ways. In the Greek, they had actually different words. The Greek word that Paul uses here is phileo, which means affection. But I'll tell you what, it's not even the strongest word for affection. It's not even the strongest word for love. It is sincere, for sure. It is sincere love, but in terms of like selflessness and action, it's sort of middle of the road. Phileo is. But that's the word that Paul uses. He says, if anyone, if they don't have any phileo, even this middle of the road love for Jesus, let him be accursed. So, here is a definition of a Christian, if we're listening carefully. It is not someone who goes to church. That's probably the most common definition for people today. What's a Christian? A Christian is someone who goes to church. I remember how this would infuriate my wife and I when we were youth pastors like a million years ago. And there would be high school students and they would begin dating another high school student. And what would be the first question as good youth pastors that we would ask them about this person they were dating. We would ask them, is he or she a Christian? And the answer so often would be something like, I think they go to this church. And we just wanted to strangle them. Because that doesn't mean anything. Do we not yet know that you can go to church and not be a Christian? It's not just the people that walk through these, these, these doors. They're magical. They're magical doors. And all you have to do is walk through them. These seats are magical. And if you sit in these seats and go through this door, you're saved for eternity. It doesn't work like that. We know this. So a Christian is not someone who goes to church. It's not someone who attends a Bible study. It's not someone who reads the Bible. It's not someone who's been baptized. A Christian is someone who loves Jesus. That's what marks These people in Corinth who Paul says are accursed, they don't have any phileo for Jesus. 
A Christian loves Jesus. Some of you have heard me tell this story. I know I've told it several times about the late, great R.C. Sproul and how he would help Christians who would come into his office who were struggling with assurance of their salvation. Now, Christians, how many of you watch this? How many of you Christians have struggled before with assurance of your salvation? Would you just, I never ask this. Would you just raise your hand, please, to make the point? How many of you Christians have ever struggled with assurance of your salvation? Probably, I would assume 90 plus percent of your hands went up. This is a common problem. Well, the way he would deal with it was to ask them four questions. And I've been so helped by this personally. He would ask them four questions. The first question he would ask, he would say, do you love the biblical Jesus perfectly? That word biblical is important. Not like your definition of Jesus or who you think Jesus is or who you want Jesus to be. But, you know, you read the Bible and you understand, okay, this is who Jesus is. Do you love him perfectly? I said the answer was always no. No. We'd ask him a second question. Well, do you love him as much as you ought to love him? Well, they said no to the first question. They're saying no to the second question. And it's actually those negative answers to those two questions that usually get doubting Christians in front of a pastor in the first place. I'm not, I know I'm not loving Jesus as much as I should. I'm not loving him perfectly. I don't even feel like I'm close. Third question. Do you love him at all? Do you love him at all? Is there any genuine affection for God? And most of them would say, yes. That bar would feel low to them. But yes, I, I do have love for God. I do have genuine affection for God. And then he'd ask the fourth question. How could that possibly be? How could that possibly be? Because I know that an unsaved person has no love for God. An unsaved person has zero affection for God. Someone who is not a Christian has no love for Jesus. A Christian is someone who loves Christ. The good things that you do do not prove that you are a Christian. And the bad things that you do do not prove that you're not. Your love for Jesus proves that you are a Christian. Now that truth that is clear here and all over the Bible, 
That truth takes the wind out of proud sails and it takes the burden off despairing backs. To the one who is proud, you might be proud today. You're feeling pretty good about yourself. You had a good week. People were giving you compliments. You had seven quiet times. Like, we're talking 10 plus minute quiet times. The real deal. You didn't cuss all week. You didn't blow up at your kids for the last 48 hours. I mean, you are riding high right now. To the proud, who is proud of long prayers or obedient children or ministry leading or the books that you've read or your devotion streak, that is not, none of that stuff is the reason that God loves you. None of it. And to the one who is despairing, this week was a wreck. It was bad between you and your wife. It was bad between you and your kids. Your thoughts were all over the place. You can't believe some of the things you said. Well, to the one who's embarrassed by unruly kids and left with little time to pray, let alone have a quiet time and you watch too much TV and you need to lose weight and all the rest, all that stuff is not a reason God doesn't love you. That's the point. Christian, God loves you unconditionally because Jesus has met all the conditions for you. Every condition. Living the life that you should live. Dying the death you deserve. All in your place. 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we have loved God. But that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that truth. That glorious truth that is so important is the heart of the gospel. It is not an excuse to neglect personal growth and holiness. That's not what it is. It is a reason to thank and love God. Some Christians get freaked out when you give the true gospel. You can't say that. You can't say that your bad things you do don't prove that God doesn't love you. And you can't say that the good things that you do prove that God loves you. If you do that, people aren't going to be good. And that's so stupid. So this is not an excuse to say what you do doesn't matter. And so live the way that you want and neglect personal growth and neglect personal holiness. No, this is a reason for personal growth. This is a reason to become more holy. This is a reason to thank God and to love God. So do you love Jesus? Do you love him at all? then you're not cursed. You're his beloved children. 
Do you not love Jesus? I'm sure someone's uncovered that dark secret in the last 10 minutes. And maybe you're the one that's done all those good things and you are that cup that's really shiny on the outside. But then when I just asked you to look inside and to say, is there any love for Jesus in there? You're sitting there going, no. I don't think there is. Well, there's hope for you. There is hope for you because you are looking around this room right now at tons of people who used to not love Jesus. We also, at one point, did not love Jesus. So you are, you're in the right place. You're in the right place because you're not going to love Jesus without hearing the good news of who he is and what he's done and what he's doing and what he's going to do. And you'll hear that here. You're also in the right place because this house is full of people who are praying for you that God would move these words from your head to your heart, that you would believe, that you would love him and be saved. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed, Paul writes, our Lord come. That's the first thing Paul says here in his own greeting. And now the second and third, which I'll take quickly and out of order, number two. In verse 24, Paul writes, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus, amen. Affection. Paul's affection, intimacy, warmth, warmth from Paul to them, warmth from these various Christians and churches, verses 19 and 20, and now Paul says, from, from me. Some, because this letter is so hard, some of the Corinthians doubted Paul's love. And he has to say this in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. Paul loves the Corinthians. He expresses it. He ends his letter telling them how much he cares about them. The Corinthians are his Beloved, And so he can say these really hard words, like just before he can say these really hard words and then follow it right up with, I love you. There's nothing inconsistent there. And now finally and in conclusion, there's one last thing that we'll see in this letter. Paul wraps up his letter with a prayer for grace. Verse 23, the grace of of the Lord Jesus be with you. This is how Paul always begins and ends his letters. You should ask yourself why. But he always begins and ends with a prayer for grace. At the start of this letter, in chapter 1, verse 3, he wrote, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you could probably answer this question. 
why does Paul end and begin his letters with prayer for grace? Why? Why, after all the teaching and instruction and counsel and hard words and exhortation, does Paul say, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you? Well, because without it, we're dead. In so many ways. <laughs> Without God's grace, we're dead. Dead physically. Dead spiritually. We're alienated from Him. We're separated from Him forever. We should live as He is God and He's created us to love Him and to worship Him and to honor Him, to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. What an absolutely fair and appropriate command of us as His creation. This is what we're called to do. And every single one of us was born and we gave that a shot and we made it about 10 seconds. So the only way that we can be saved, the only way that we could be loved by God, the only way that we can survive is if He gives us favor and love in spite of who we are, not because of who we are, and that's what grace is. Undeserved favor. And without grace, we're dead. What do we need to love Jesus? We need grace. What do we need to love one another like we've been instructed in this letter? We need grace. What do we need? 54 weeks now, what do we need to apply everything that we have learned in this book? We need grace. So is that your final prayer for, for one another? Is that your final prayer for yourself, for your wife, for your husband, for your kids, for your loved ones, your brothers, your sisters, your friends, your church? Is that where we end up? Oh God, give us grace that we may love you the way you deserve to be loved and that we may love others the way you have called us to love them. God, give us grace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, in response to your word today, we, we turn our attention now to, to grace, to the sacrificial death of your Son, May you be glorified as we remember his sacrifice, as we proclaim it and celebrate it, his death in our place so that we could be reconciled to you. In his name we pray, amen. So let's respond by taking communion together. If you're here and you are 
visiting, you're welcome to take communion with us if you're a Christian. If you've committed yourself to Christ and his people, it doesn't need to be this church. Maybe you're committed to another church that preaches the same gospel that you heard here today. But if that's you and you're a believer, you're welcome to take communion with us. Let me read to you all from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 36. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So if you pull back this top layer and grab this bread, it is a symbol of the body of Christ. Let's take and eat this together. And this cup which is a symbol of the blood of Christ, let's take and drink this together. Will you please stand again with me?